James chapter two is where we are today. I saw something a couple of weeks ago I've never seen before. It was on uh, the Saturday night of Time Change Weekend, and I don't know, like many of you, I didn't really want to go to bed all that early. I really wasn't all that tired. Been watching college football much of the day, and uh, I thought, well, there's another game on. I'm going to stay up and, and watch it. And of course, the late games on Saturday are typically the West Coast games, right? This one was a contest between the University of Southern California and Arizona State. Honestly, I've never seen much point to West Coast football. I don't know. But I thought, well, why not? Um, I'll, I'll stay up and, and give it a shot. I get an extra hour of sleep tonight anyway. I'm really glad that I did because I saw something I'd never seen before. Right in the middle of the game, the game was stopped, being momentarily interrupted by, of all things, a fox running onto the field. I've never seen a fox. I've seen a lot of cats interrupt football games and seen a lot of birds land on the playing field, but I've never seen a fox. Evidently, there are desert foxes out there in the desert of Tempe, Arizona. And this one was apparently attracted by the bright lights of the stadium. I'm telling you, in that stadium, people had gathered to worship the football god. And the glow, the Shekinah glory was shining. And that fox saw it from the desert, from the darkness the dryness of the desert. And he was attracted to the light. The only problem was everybody started acting really weird when he walked in to the house of the football gods. Um, the football players immediately started walking away from him as if they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And then all of a sudden, these strange people started running out on the field, making shooing motions with their hands, trying to run all around him. And that was kind of spooky to the fox. He didn't quite know how to handle that. He began to look around and he could tell he really didn't look like everybody else. He wasn't dressed like everybody else. He wasn't made up like everybody else. And everybody else looked at him and they knew this is a guy really probably doesn't belong here, to be honest with you. And they were showing it by how they reacted. Those official looking guys who were trying to shoo him away spooked him so that the next place he went, fast as lightning, was to dart into the stands. And I mean, when he did that, people who at one time were all snug and tight together, they began to lose their minds. And they began to scatter as fast as they could. They didn't want to be around him. They didn't want to touch him. They didn't want to be touched by him. So they began to run from him. Man, he scampered up the stairs as far as he could go until he ran out of the sight of the camera lens and could be seen no more. And everybody went back to business as usual. Only after a few minutes, he reappeared again, this time back down on the field level. And those official-looking people were back only this time in greater numbers. And they were once again making the same shooing motion, this time forming a perimeter around him to properly direct him to a corner tunnel. And once he found that tunnel, that fox looked and saw nothing ahead of him. And so he tucked tail and he ran, darting down that tunnel as fast as he could 
back out away from the light into the darkness of the desert. I actually saw all of that happen a couple of Saturday nights ago. And you know, as I was reading our passage for today, I thought that kind of thing happens in a lot of churches week in, week out, where people maybe who are attracted to something different that they don't have out in the darkness of the real world walk in expecting to find open arms and a welcome, and instead they're oftentimes greeted with a scattering, sometimes even worse, with people who treat them as if they're doing them like this. James has a word for us about that kind of behavior. This has apparently been a problem in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ever since the very first one because James has something to say about the radical acceptance of all kinds of people that's supposed to happen in the community of faith. That ought to be the hallmark of every New Testament church. Open arms and an open welcome to everyone, even when they don't always look, think, and act like us. To set the stage, we need to take a look at what our good friend Pastor James has to say about this, beginning in chapter 2 of his letter. We're going to read together the first 10 verses. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of the Holy Word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at, at, at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Father, we pray that today you would take these words from <clears throat> the holiness of the eternal word of God and embed them in our hearts, minds, and souls that we might live obediently in a way that makes much of Christ, much of the gospel, and in a way that's attractive to a lost and dying world. Find us faithful here in this area that's often so very difficult for us to live with in consistency. And we pray, Lord, you'll be pleased 
with the thoughts and the motivations of our hearts today and with the obedience of our lives in the days to come. Through Christ our Savior, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. Now, <clears throat> let me just say this morning, I'm, I'm well aware that in the climate that we've lived in for the past few years, people tend to think that when a pastor brings a message about partiality or favoritism or discrimination, uh, that it's bound to be controversial. Oh, Pastor Jim's going to preach about discriminating between people today. Let me say, are y'all listening? Say amen. amen. This ought to be the easiest thing in the world for us to talk about. I mean, what James says here in this passage of Scripture is so simple that a little child can understand it. And so this is not a difficult topic for us to discuss. I mean, it's challenging when you talk about it politically and all the ramifications that go along with that. But as far as life together in the family of God, what our life in our Christian counterculture within a larger culture is supposed to look like, there's nothing controversial about what I'm going to talk about today. James says it, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way to misunderstand that, that statement right there. The word partiality is a word that literally means to receive a face. That's what the word means, to receive a face. And the idea is judging somebody based on what you see. So in other words, if I were to show you on the screens this morning a series of different close-up shots of different kinds of people, you would have a tendency to make a quick value judgment based on the color of skin, the shape of eyes, the texture of hair, uh, the age of the person, right? So I could show all kinds of different images of people's faces and you would tend to form an instant opinion about that and that's what the word means. To receive a face means to make a value judgment based only on what you see with your eyes, based only on physical or external appearances. Now here's the thing, most of us in the room are really bad about doing that. But James couldn't be more clear in communicating that that kind of partiality does not have any place inside the community of faith. And it doesn't have any place within the larger kingdom of God. Let me give you three reasons this morning for those of you that are note takers, why that's true. Why the local church should be the most welcoming place on the planet. Why the local church should always be a place of what I'm calling today radical acceptance. Y'all ready to run quick this morning? Say amen. Reason number one is because discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. It's incompatible with the gospel. James gives the example here of two people who enter what's presumably a, a worship gathering in the church. We know that there's an assembly. We don't know exactly what it's for, but most believe that it's a regular worship gathering of, of the church on the Lord's day. Uh, and these two people are obviously not very well known at all by the larger congregation. So they're either guests or they're newer people within the church because they're just not known very well. They're, they're just as different as they can be. The Bible says one is literally gold-fingered. Gold-finger, right? You remember that? That's what the word is in the Greek New Testament. And it just simply means this guy walks in and he's wearing fine jewelry. I'm talking Elabash or beret. Can I have an amen this morning? And he's wearing finer clothing, Neiman Marcus quality 
clothing. And so it's easy as he appears before the face to make a certain value judgment based on his appearance. This guy's got money, right? And then the other person is what James calls <laughs> shabby, right? One is gold-fingered and the other is, is shabby. And his clothing is tattered. Uh, that's an extreme word, unkempt. The word is more literally filthy. And so this has got the picture of like a legitimate homeless person, right? Who is just filthy dirty. But it's the treatment of the two, not so much their appearance, but how they're treated that has the pastor concerned here. Because the well-dressed man in the gold ring gets special treatment, right? Much like, you know, what happens in a church today is a politician walks in, everybody goes gaga. Or a celebrity walks in, a Christian celebrity of some kind, everybody goes nuts in a positive kind of way. So we're quick to bring them hot coffee and a platter of Krispy Kremes and and they get ushered down to the prime seats right here, right? Toward the front. We want you to have unobstructed view of everything that happens here today. And yet the other person is totally different, totally different story for the shabby guy. He's just told to stand in the corner. He, or even worse, sit on the floor, right? Can you imagine when seats are available for us to have someone come in here and tell them to sit down on the floor. But you see, James's point is to make those kinds of distinctions incompatible. Incompatible with the gospel, incompatible with the Christ of the gospel. And you know why that's true? Because here's the thing. Under the rubric of the gospel, there's only one classification for humanity. And you know what it is? Sinner. Sinner, that's it. One classification the gospel looks at all of humanity and judges us in exactly the same way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul makes it very clear, particularly in his letter to the Romans, that that gospel, which is good news for, sinner, for sinners, sinful people, that gospel is announced for all people, for all the nations, rich or poor, doesn't matter, black or white, Jew or Gentile, male or female, Asian, Hispanic, Caucasian, doesn't matter. The gospel is for all people. And Paul says it there in Romans 2 in verse 11. He makes it as clear as he can be. For there is no partiality with God. Amen. And if God is impartial... Don't you know that he expects his people to be impartial as well? And I think it's interesting here. Don't miss that James refers to Jesus in the first verse of this passage here. My brothers, show no partiality as you, the people of God, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, that's a very rare use of that title of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And I think that James is using it very strategically, particularly when there are certain people that are getting favorable treatment in the family of God, James goes out of his way to say, look, when you gather together in worship, there is one and only one 
who should get glory of any kind, and it's the King of kings, it's the Lord of lords, it's the risen Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the Lord of glory, and when you glorify anybody else based on externals, you're committing sin right there in the middle of the worship service. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of glory. Not the rich, not the powerful, not the celebrity, not the majority race. And when we discriminate and make distinctions among ourselves, James says, we become judges with evil thoughts. You ought to circle the word evil there. Because what that means, again, I'm telling you, a first grade kid can understand this. Discrimination in the eyes of God is evil behavior. That's what it says right there. I mean, we, we, we tend to classify, uh, classi classify stuff like this as second-rate or third-rate sins, but it's not. It's evil, according to God. And that's what makes it incompatible with the gospel, a gospel that's intended by God for all people in all the nations. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all, say it out loud, you are what? All sons of God through faith. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all, say it out loud together with me, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. Everybody tracking with me, would you say amen? amen? Reason number two that we should show no partiality, that we should be a place of radical acceptance is because discrimination is incompatible with grace. It's incompatible with grace, which is why it's incompatible with the gospel. Because what is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God showed it to all of us that saved a wretch like me. And so James's point is, if you're gonna sit there and freely receive the grace of God when you know you don't deserve it, how in the wide world can you possibly withhold it from antibody, even when they may not deserve it? See, that's the whole point. Partiality is incompatible with a ministry that's based on grace. It was conspicuously absent here in the early church for whatever reason. I mean, they, they were treating outsiders based on externals in ways that were humiliating to them. And you should remember, I mean, what they were doing was they were humiliating the poor by how they were treating them. And don't you remember that poor folk held a very special place in the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that right? I've not come to, I mean, a doctor has no need uh, or the, the well have no need for a doctor. You know, I've come that I might minister to those who are sick and know that they're sick, right? And that was usually poor folk. Jesus began his public ministry there in his hometown of Nazareth, and the Bible says that he stood right there in the synagogue of Nazareth. And he stood to speak, and he opened up the Isaiah scroll, and he read these words from Isaiah 61 and 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, say it out loud, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In fact, Jesus will go on to say later on in Luke chapter six, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me just stop there for a second and make it very clear that this does not mean in any way, shape, or form that only poor people go to heaven. It doesn't mean you have to be poor to qualify for heaven. It does not mean all poor people automatically go to heaven. It doesn't mean any of, any of that. But it does, however, reflect uh, the need for humility as a condition of going to heaven. <laughs> I mean, you know, the proud peacocks don't go to heaven. I mean, you, anybody that would be saved has to humble themselves before the Lord as a condition of salvation. And it's just easier for the poor to do that. It's easier for poor people to recognize how lowly they are. Is it not easier for poor people to typically be aware of their need for God, of their need for deliverance? It's easier for poor people typically to depend on God as opposed to the rich. See, the problem with rich folk is they tend to be blinded by their wealth. It's hard for people who have a lot of money to submit to anybody. It's hard for wealthy people to say, Lord, I give you all my life, including my money. Most of the time, it's I give you everything about my life, but there's one thing. And the reason that they have such a hard time in doing that, and notice I say they, because I ain't one of them. But notice the reason they have difficulty in doing that is because their security is wrapped up in their money. They're afraid of what might happen if they don't have it. This is the whole point of the story of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, right? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus could see right through him. Jesus never made a judgment according to the face. Jesus always makes judgments according to the heart because he's got eyes with x-ray vision, right? They go all the way to the heart. And he knew that guy had an idol that would always stand in the way of him being fully sold out to Christ as Savior and Lord. And so he says, I tell you what you need to do. You gotta go divest yourself of all your earthly goods and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come then and follow me. And man, I'm telling you, that guy couldn't do it, could he? He couldn't do it. So the saddest stories in the Bible because here's this guy, saw something in Jesus that he didn't have that he desperately wanted, goes to him to find out what it is. When he finds out what it is, he turns his back on it. And the Bible says he went away sad because he had what? Great wealth, that's right. He turned away from Jesus because of his money. If surrendering to Christ as Lord means divesting myself of worldly possessions, I cannot do it. And that's why many who have means never come around to the Lord Jesus Christ because this whole idea of humble submission of every part of my life, which is a condition of following Christ as Savior, is something that's just very difficult for them. And that's why Jesus said that guy had gotten across the horizon before Jesus turns to his disciples and says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. That's what the Lord said. 
Well, nigh almost impossible, not impossible, but very, very difficult. Now, having said that, let me do another excursus. I'm not saying that it's a sin to be rich. Did you hear me say amen? Lots of rich Christians in the Bible. Barnabas was one of them. Lydia was one of them. Erasmus, uh, who you read about in the letter to the Colossians, who probably founded the church at Colossae, was a man of means, a wealthy business. There are lots of wealthy people in the Bible who surrendered their life and followed Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so uh, it's no sin to be rich, and rich people can go to heaven and do. And the thing about Jesus is he loved everybody. He loved them all. In fact, according to that of the, the scripture, Jesus and that rich young ruler, the Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that great? Even though he knew that his heart was full of idolatry, even though he knew that the demands were gonna be too great and that guy was gonna turn and walk away from him, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And that's what we love about Jesus. Jesus ministered to a wealthy man like Nicodemus, a wealthy man like Joseph of Arimathea, while at the same time ministering to poor folk like a Samaritan woman at a well or a lame man at the pool of Bethesda and so forth and so on. Because he knew the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ was for everybody. And yet, Jesus also knew that the poor tended to be rejected and marginalized by the rich and powerful in society. That was often the case. And they held a special place because they didn't have a chance in this world. They didn't have a chance in this world. And Jesus wanted them to know, you have a chance in the kingdom that really counts. Amen. You have a chance with me, even though you don't have a chance anywhere else in this life. Look at what he says in verse five, James that is. Verse five and five, uh, or, or chapter two and verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. That's that last statement that reminds us that the early church who had freely received the grace of God for their own salvation was failing to minister the grace of God to others that they didn't consider worthy of it. And that's what we have to shun and avoid at all. We don't shun people. We shun wrong attitudes biblically. Attitudes that look like that. They'd fail to realize that the presence of sin makes us all poor in the eyes of God. We're all spiritually bankrupt as we stand in the presence of a holy God. And until you realize how poor you are before the Lord, and I don't care if you're a millionaire or a billionaire this side of heaven, you cannot be saved until you realize how spiritually bankrupt you are in the presence of a holy God. And that necessitates all of humanity approaching God on their knees in a spirit of humility and trust. And apart from that, no one can be saved. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter five. It's the first of the eight Beatitudes. Blessed, in fact, let's say it together as they put it on the screen. Everybody together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Together, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. You want to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, you better approach Jesus with a poverty of spirit. Realizing that you don't have what it takes to save yourself, you need radical help from the outside. If God doesn't do it, it isn't going to get done. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To approach God in humble submission. And that's why we should be radically accepting of others, even when they're materially poor or not like us, right? Because that's how God has viewed us and it's how God has accepted us. That's why the church should always be a grace place, amen. A grace place, a place of radical acceptance for the high and mighty, but a place of radical acceptance to the weak and to the lowly. Y'all still tracking with me? Amen. There's a third reason we ought to be a a place of radical acceptance. Because discrimination is incompatible with the gospel, incompatible with grace, incompatible with the law of love. Notice what James says in verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are, say it out loud, committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, even this point of being partial to other people based on what you experience externally and how you view them, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become what? Guilty of all of it. Now, I want you to circle the phrase royal law there. That's very unusual in the Bible. That's kind of distinctive to James. And James talks about fulfilling, making sure the people of God fulfill this royal law, whatever that is. And I think we can know what it is. But whatever it is, Uh, It has to have something, if it's royal, it has to have something to do with a king, right? Has to have something to do with a sovereign. The idea when he says royal law, the, the, the real idea there I think is the supreme law, the governing law, the law that governs, the law of the king that governs the kingdom as the supreme law of the kingdom of the king, that royal law. And, uh, That's the law of love. I mean, law is a big part of the biblical record. You know that. And most of the time we associate law with the Old Testament, right? The the Torah, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. In fact, there's a lot more than Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. There's like 600 plus of those things, right? I mean, it's just one commandment after another. And that was, of course, given to the chosen people of God. Those were the commands that were given to the Jews. And I mean, each of them was important. Each of those laws were binding on the children of Israel. But James says here that there's one specific law that takes precedence over all of those others, 600 plus that are mentioned in the Bible. And it's the kingdom law of L-O-V-E, which spells what? Love. It's the law of love. In fact, Jesus made that very clear. Um, the sum total of all of God's will for his people is wrapped up in two things, loving God 
and loving other people. We call it the great commandment. It's in Matthew 22. And here's what it says, beginning in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet. And what do those two great commandments have in common? What's the one word that binds them together? Say it out loud, please. Love, that's right. That's the royal law that James is talking about here. And it's this commandment, this royal law of love that makes discrimination, partiality, such a danger within the community of faith because it violates the one law that Jesus elevates as supreme above all others. I mean, it's the governing law of the kingdom. It's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. It's why Paul says love is the most excellent way. It's the summum bonum, the highest of all of the attributes of God that we tend to understand. God is love. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. When we don't do that, we violate the most important law ever recorded in Scripture. See, if you love your neighbor as yourself, it won't matter if they're dressed in shining clothing or shabby clothing. If you love your neighbor as yourself, it it doesn't matter if they're a politician or if they're a pauper. It doesn't matter if they're dark-skinned or brown-skinned or light-skinned. It doesn't matter if they're European or if they're Latin, if they're African or if they're Asian, if they're uh, if, if they're from any other part of the world other than the United States of America, none of that matters because the royal law of Christ demands that we show love to all people by being welcoming to all people eagerly, enthusiastically, and equally. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Fail to do that, James says, and you reveal yourself as a lawbreaker, a transgressor. You say, well, man, that's only one law. I mean, I haven't murdered anybody and I haven't raped anybody. Can I make a statement this morning? Are y'all still with me? Say amen. Nine out of 10 doesn't cut it with God. God's not looking for a passing grade of 80. Nine out of 10 doesn't cut it with God. Eight out of 10 doesn't cut it with God. The law of God is an indivisible unity, which is why if you break one law, you break the whole law, right? I'm here to tell you, you can commit mail fraud in the United States of America And you can say, well, you know, at least I hadn't murdered anybody, at least I hadn't raped anybody, but you are still a felon. You're no different from the murder. Both of you are felons in the eyes of God. And I know there are differences in consequences, but in terms of judgment, the judicial rendering is no different. Transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law, James says, and yet 
violates only one component of it has broken the whole thing. Felon. And we all know that we all are. That's why we need grace. Listen, the last thing that we want to do, I mean, understanding that's especially true if we break the royal law, the king's law, which is the law of love. It's the last thing we should want to do. Last thing we should want to do is do this to people. Let's just get them in the corner tunnel so they can scamper back to wherever it was they came from. Doesn't matter that the light of the gospel is shining brightly and they need that more than anything else in life. The last thing that we should want is to be revealed as evildoers and transgressors in the sight of God because we've made a decision to distinguish between people based on what they look like, where they come from, how much they're worth. The church ought to be a place of radical acceptance. And that requires a radical gospel based on radical grace demonstrated by radical love. Aren't you thankful today that those things are the very things that God has shown to you by sending his son as a sacrifice to die on the cross? And the point James is making to the people of God then as now, if God has shown that kind of love and grace to you through the gospel, that's exactly what he expects us to show to all people who are desperate for the light of eternal life. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.